This is the Geoversive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence. Today, we're going to be delving into a subject that many of you may not have thought about. In fact, we haven't thought about for uh, only the last month. And it is the question of whether science is a human right. Our guests today, of course, are Myra Jackson and Joseph Robertson. Well, let's start out at the beginning with just the question. Joe, you've written about this uh, just recently, and it struck me that this is something we should talk about. Is science a human right? The times we're living in make it necessary to ask that question. And the more that I have thought about it, the more I've looked into the way we treat this question historically, which we do, there's a lot of, of activity around the question of whether science is a right, whether it's legal history or literary history, or simply the battle for the freedom to seek and to share knowledge, the more we look into that history, the harder it is, I think, to find a reason why it wouldn't be a right. In the United States right now, we're living through an unbelievable crisis. 3,000 people have died in one day from COVID-19. That's more people than died in the 9-11 attacks. It's 10 times as many as South Korea as a nation had throughout the majority of this pandemic in one day. The reason for that is very clear. There has been a coordinated effort to obstruct the flow of science information to people and to corrupt people's willingness to trust science. And here's the thing about that that's so insidious. Science is not an ideology. It's not a belief system. Science is knowledge. Knowledge is what we know from evidence. It's not something you can say is not to be trusted. You can, it can evolve. It can grow. It can learn more. You can replace old interpretations with new ones, but science is knowledge. And if some people have access to the best knowledge and some people don't have access to any of that knowledge, then there's a hugely uneven burden that people are carrying in society, and that is fundamentally unjust. And let me push back just a little bit, Joe. We're not talking about access, it seems to me, because the people who are uninformed on science and the people who are informed on the science both have access to the same information, it seems to me. Are you saying that they don't? I am saying they don't. And I'll say that there are at least three different ways in which they don't. First of all, in order to have access to scientific information, for that word access to be meaningful, if you're going to compare two different human beings' situations, does the, the more vulnerable, the less affluent of those people have the ability to mobilize the applications of that science? Does that person have the ability to get access to medical care? Does that person have the ability to protect him or herself from threats? So that's that kind of access. Do you have access to the applications? There's another kind, which is, do you, can you actually find the information? In theory, all the information in the world is now open and available, unless it's under some kind of subscription service. But in reality, you know, most people don't have time to sift through all the knowledge in the world. And quite a few of us, we're getting our information through highly filtered sort of alternate realities on social media. And I say highly filtered because social media platforms advertise to people by 
by tracing their interests and then flooding them with things that they think will catch their interest. And so there are a lot of people who don't have access to the same information. They're not going to see what the New England Journal of Medicine has reported. They're not going to see the latest information about scientific discovery in the solar system. It's just not going to appear anywhere that they look because the information sources they use have been programmed to deny them access to that information. And then there's a third way in which we have to think about access, which is, is there actually some kind of uneven distribution of the benefits of science? So first, can you use the applications? Second, can you find the information? But third, are you living in the world in a way where, for some reason, some people are going to be allowed to make use of the best available science. And some people are going to be treated as if that would be a waste. And that is more of an economic problem, but it ends up being a question of whether people have the right to access the best available information. When it comes down to your right to live, your right to breathe, your right not to get sick, uh, your right to live as long a life as you can, making your own personal choices about the world in front of you, Uh, There isn't really a good reason why any of these three obstacles should be put in someone's way. Joe, I don't uh, mean to sound like we're going to gang up on you, but I'm going to ask Myra to chime in here because I want to ask her as the the humanities person in here, and not to say you are not, you you are that and more. But Myra, it sounds to me like whether a person has access to science is not whether it is rightfully theirs but it is a personal choice. They've chosen to watch or read a station, a network, a cable outlet, a newspaper that doesn't provide them that. So therefore, their information, their intellectual level on science may be lacking, but they have chosen to knowingly reject, it seems to me. Am I wrong? Is the idea of access to good science, something that people choose to absorb or not choose to absorb. There's another layer there that we need to bring in to better understand the experience of the consumer of information. And that is, you know, our the best manipulators of the information have all been around ads, right? articles that are actually advertisements rather than true news articles. The problem is, as I see it, because I see it every day, a quote from a journal of one part of a scientific study that's used in one piece of advertisement, and you go right down to the next article and there's a contradiction. This is repeated over and over. For the consumer, they wonder what to trust, and you have a different set of equations. So that's one. The other is the language of science is arcane. It is set up to be exclusive. And people look upon this kind of uh, presentation, and it's easy to dismiss. It's easy to throw up your hand and not tackle it. If it's not written for you to understand, then you're naturally offended in a sense. There's a lot that underlies it in some populations too across the world. Uh, You know, it's not long been a custom in which we have the majority of the population that are literate. There were reasons, age old reasons 
for keeping information secluded from others. And I feel that it still prevails. I feel we are fed what marketers want us to know and see. And unfortunately, you and I have grown up in an era where we've seen news become a part of that channel of poor information. So I think it's not, I think it's twofold. The way science introduces information and packages information and the way that that businesses use that information for selling products. Joe, coming off of what Myra has just said, it brings me to the question of whether you are actually making the claim that there are providers of information in what we may just call generally the media who are knowingly keeping solid science away from people. There are certainly some very strange characters out there who do seem to have either a personal belief system where they want to achieve that somehow, or they have some vested interest and they're trying to obstruct people's access to sound science. The denial of human-caused climate disruption, of course, is a very powerful, very current example. I'm not criticizing the way science is communicated I think Myra's right that when you communicate at the cutting edge and you communicate among peers who have technical reasons for the language they use, that arcane language can be difficult to penetrate. But there's an incredible example of how you overcome that, which is the space race. One of the reasons that that the name NASA resonates with people and people get a kind of burst of inspiration from that name is because... For 10 years, there was this coordinated effort to convince the public that what NASA was doing was important. And the convincing wasn't done through persuasion. It was done through uh, explanation of the science, making it approachable, showing what it took human for human beings to be able to do this, how many technical tasks were required to be solved, the amount of precision, the mind-boggling precision that was required to be able to get rockets into space, get people into orbit, get to the moon and back safely. It became an intuitive reality to the general public that that kind of precision is service to everyone, that what was happening in the development of that science was the possibility of improving the condition of all of humankind. And therefore, that kind of science is heroic. Even for people who don't care about space exploration, who don't care about astronomy or the physics of the solar system, the fact that that was happening and that that was the intuitive reality made evident, I think, that science is service. And science is service because it's a way for us to know what we're doing in the world. It's a way for us to be able to operate safely. And this is how good science, when it's understood, when it becomes intuitively the right of all people is trust building and it allows societies to get stronger and to dream bigger and to do more. Those are not meant to be sort of emotional words. Those are, that's the reality of what starts to happen when people are coming together in this quest for knowledge. But I'm reminded that the public had at that time, a Walter Cronkite who had steeped himself in the space program and was able to interpret the information uh, for the Main Street level uh, listener, for the viewer, there was Jules Bergman, who was a scientist himself and a reporter. 
who made all of this reasonable and understandable to the average public. But we don't have these people in place today. There are a few, but they don't have the ear of the public the way that Cronkite and Jules Bergman did. So, Myra, do you think it is a communications issue? Oh, yes. And scientists would agree with you. You know, I feel that uh, what what they would long for is to have some kind of control over the the narrative, the supply chain, if you will, from discovery, research outcomes, and getting it to the public in a meaningful way. They've literally fell on their own sword saying, we have failed in communicating. And, you know, I, I love that you brought up Conkrite because it, still his voice resonates in my ears, you know. Um, I have a, a visceral response to that voice being that voice that I trusted. And, you know, we had limited channels to watch. And so if you were a TV viewer, the chances of you seeing your favorite newscaster that became a trusted newscaster was, was you know, it was a sure thing. But remember also, part of what was also going on during that space race was a lot of wonderful media. In Living Color, we were watching our favorite TV programs and movies that were all geared around explaining space through entertainment. And so there were many vehicles for, um, uh, it was an all hands on deck kind of moment in the country. I love those moments. I think that's where we are again. And we do need our scientists to be at the forefront. Joe, now let's talk about the human rights issue. Doesn't a human right have to be codified in some way? And let's say the perpetrator of an action that would withhold a right or to abridge a right, and let's say science in this case, would there be punishment for someone who abridged the human right to science? So this is a really great question, Don. I think, first of all, I don't think that you need to codify a right. I think codifying a right, making it law, helps to protect that right. But if you go to the founding of the United States, the recognition that certain rights are unalienable means that they cannot be eliminated or erased simply by not being written down. They exist anyway. And that's the nature of a human right. It is it is something that should be guaranteed to all people implicitly simply by the fact that we exist and are human. And so a person might choose to disavow science. That doesn't make science or the access to its benefits any less of a right for everyone else or for that person, uh, for that matter. Every single day, doctors are dealing with this exact problem. Their patients may not understand what they're recommending. Their patients may not even trust them, or maybe even want the treatment they're recommending, but they're going to try to do what science tells them is best. And right now we have people who are treating patients that scream at them, telling them it can't be COVID that I have. I can't be dying of COVID. It's not real. Cursing at the doctors that are risking their lives to save them. The fact that it's not written down doesn't mean it's not a right. The fact that someone denies it or tries to reject it doesn't mean it's not a right. Also, you know, the Ninth Amendment to the United States Constitution is one of my favorite pieces of written law. It says that rights not enumerated are still protected. I think that's really important for us to start to get our minds around as we enter into this age where the health of our planet, the health of humanity as a planetary reality 
not just your health, my health as individuals, but our collective health and well-being, as these things are getting to a place where we're experiencing existential stresses, we're going to have to examine whether people should be punished for denying other people the right to the best available science. If a company tells you that you're eating healthy food, but they knowingly put something in that food that they that that is poisonous to you, it's not just going to have negative health impacts down the road. It's too fatty or something like that, but they put a toxic chemical in that food and poison you. Their deception should be prosecuted. And I think it would be, but there are other variations of that same behavior that might seem more subtle where the bad actor would simply pretend, oh, we just aren't sure about the science. When that is a deliberate deception and the goal is to try to impose harm on people and deny them their right to address and prevent that harm, I think there's a very strong argument that that's already written into law that that should be prosecuted. So if people have access to information, then that would also influence the way business is conducted in the United States. So let's use ExxonMobil as an example. And so we know in the 70s that their scientists had discovered that climate change was being caused by the greenhouse gases, much of which was emitted by uh, fossil fuels, and made predictions that followed the science that was uh, later to be made public by everyone from Lawrence Livermore uh, to the Keeling Observatory. All of these things were known. So ExxonMobil finds itself in, in trouble right now because it could have told the truth, but deliberately misled for business purposes the rest of the public. If people knew these facts at that time, they may have divested from ExxonMobil. Are you saying that it is the right and responsibility of an individual to have the best information possible so that they can make the best informed decisions about their future, the products they use, the amount of carbon they're putting into the atmosphere, their role and responsibility? Yeah. So there's an interesting piece of that question with ExxonMobil. So when when a private enterprise seeks to hold some sort of trade secret or to protect intellectual property, we often operate under the assumption that that's because that property is uniquely theirs, forever theirs, and can never belong to anyone else. But that's not how intellectual property and trade secrets really work. You can have a trade secret as long as you can protect it and as long as you're not hurting anybody. And you can protect intellectual property for a predetermined amount of time. But in both cases, that right of the private enterprise exists only because they're doing that is supposed to be in the best interest of everybody else. The ability to, to protect intellectual property makes it possible to invest in it, get a return on investment before the knowledge becomes universal and you can have, for instance, generic pharmaceuticals. It's only because that protected property is an inducement to service that it is protected. And so that's part one. Part two is if you commit fraud, it's fraud, which you know, I don't know all the details, but it seems pretty clear that some people had information. In some ways, they acted on it. They took actions to make sure that they were protected against certain types of eventualities, changes in the geophysics of the planet. But then they lied to the public and they spent a lot of money coming from investors to deceive the public and 
investors. And if that indeed took place, I mean, I think at the very least that sounds like fraud, but the important thing for our society to think about is, do we want to be the kind of place where people can get away with taking over entire segments of human knowledge, concealing things they don't want other people to know so that they can impose harm on those people with impunity? Do we want to be that kind of society? Is that a democratic society? And I think one of the ramifications of that behavior, which maybe everybody should take note of, is companies that behave like that become less and less relevant over time. They become obsolete. Their business models start to falter and fail, and they can't innovate quickly enough because they're, they've built a reality that's not entirely connected to everyone else's reality. And, and so you see some of these companies have lost most of their market share. You see Tesla making electric vehicles, having four times the market share of some of its powerful incumbent competitors. And I just think that's partly about science. When you are able to achieve things with precision, with imagination, with vision that make people's lives better in some way, that's how you build trust. And when you work against that, people sense that you're doing something that's inherently inappropriate. Myra, I'm still stuck on the point that an individual can decide not to avail themselves of a right, of a human right. If they decide that uh, the science that tells them that greenhouse gases have been causing and are causing and will continue to cause the planet to warm with all of its attendant problems that follow on. If they choose not to believe the science, what good is the right? I'm not so sure I would even frame it that way, but I, I think the point that you're making is is the reality that we see and that we're facing here every day. But I have to say it's the trust. And, you know, trust has been lost. And trust erodes over time to where when it gets to a point like we're at today, when systems around you fail, you see pharmaceutical companies going because they've lied to the public and they've put people at risk. You see too big to fail. It's a number of things. It's really not an attack on science. For some, it is outright an attack on science, but really what it is, is controlling how people will respond to messaging. And that is what it seems the powers that be have that down. And it's playing into someone's interests to have a majority or at least a significant number of people not following the science. And the only thing, if you look across all the areas of who gains from that, it's those that are holding assets, those who have make have benefits. So I really, I do, and and where they're reaching in, where they're connecting with people, is their dissatisfaction with their life. Remember, it is important for people to feel they have a chance at happiness, and that pursuit is real. And when you feel that pursuit is not real, you are subject to in-time scenarios and narratives that give you, make you right for why things are the way they are. And I just, I see it. But here's the other thing I want to really mention quickly. 
Science is a part of our everyday life. It's not just something that's happening in academic institutions, government labs, or commercial labs, industry labs. And that is what we need to have is a sense of every citizen knowing how to decipher what they're hearing, how to make sense of what they're hearing, and go through the critical thinking to make a decision for themselves. Because in both streams that we're seeing, information streams that are coming from, you name it, whatever pulpit it is, uh, whether it's social media, what have you, we still have to be able to step back and ground that truth in some form, in some fashion. And reality is you could pull a twig off of a tree, break the branches, and that is a compass. You can draw in the sand and make perfect geometric figures. Everything we see in the natural world rises out of a beautiful order that science gets to observe and write about. It's accessible to us all in reality. Thomas Jefferson said that the basis of liberty was not the opinion and the ability to express it, but the informed opinion. And maybe in his own way, he was saying that that was a natural right, a human right. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, everyone, for sticking with us on this sort of venture into discovery of what are rights. And uh, we will be talking more about that in our next episode as we talk about the rights of nature. Does nature itself have a right? Does it have standing in court? We'll be talking about that coming up, and we appreciate you being with us. If you want to know more, go to geoversive.net. If you want to know more about this podcast, you can go to Earth Intel. I'm Don Shelby, along with Myra Jackson and Joseph Robertson. Thank you very much for being with us today on Geoversive Earth Intelligence. Mm -hmm.